This is Why Change, the podcast for a creative generation. We are your hosts. I'm Jeff. Hola, hola. Soy Carla. It's Rachel here. What's good, y'all? I'm Ashraf. And I'm Madeline. Why Change is a podcast that brings listeners around the globe to learn how arts, culture, and creativity, especially as applied by young people, can change the world, one community at a time. You're invited each week to learn and laugh while exploring the question, why change? All right, let's get started. Hello, and welcome to today's episode of the Why Change podcast. I'm your host, Jeff M. Poulin, and I'm pleased to be joined by my co-host for today's episode, Madeline McGurk. Hey, Madeline. Hi, thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Absolutely. It's great to be in our standard uh, recording process for this podcast and to be talking to you so regularly. Uh, You know, the last four episodes that we did, we got to know all of our podcast co-hosts. And listeners, if you haven't had a chance to check out those conversations, you should definitely scroll on back through our feed and give Mm -hmm. them a listen. Madeline, we, we heard about your work with the International Teaching Artists Collaborative, your background with education charities and your policy work, and, you know, those women leaders who really inspire you. But, you know, since we last spoke, it's been a few weeks. What's been going on in your world? Oh my God, so much. It's crazy because I was listening back to the podcast and I was like, wow, that was like scratching the surface. There are 20 things I didn't even talk about that I do day to day. So um, yeah, loads has been happening. A lot goes on in just a few weeks. So I was so pleased um, to be chatting today. We are about to launch a brand new climate focused project, which I'm really excited about, which will use teaching artists and their practice um, as a means to really create meaningful shifts in communities around habits and mindsets to do with the climate crisis. Um, Then we're going to take those and we're going to turn those project models, those methodologies, and use them as case studies in a wider curriculum for teaching artists. So these are two completely new initiatives for us, which I'm really excited about. And then once we have that framework for how to do that community um, work followed by wide-scale dissemination, then we can really take that and channel it towards any social issue that we choose. So it's really a pilot for us and I'm really excited about it. Also, Um, We have been thinking a lot about hub development, which I can't say too much about right now because we aren't in a position to launch yet, but I've been having great chats with people in different parts of the world, different regions, around establishing dedicated spaces there that will respond directly to the contexts that they're in, be created by and for those communities, um, completely up to those areas what they program and what issues they focus on but with international support from our network so it's a really exciting development anyone who's done any looking at network theory knows you've got to have your active and responsive nodes so it's a a really exciting step towards that so I hope to be able to say more about that in the next few months but that would be kind of game-changing for us so stay tuned for that. Those are both so exciting. I mean, one, the the climate crisis is just paramount at this mm-hmm. time. So I think really articulating how how artists can be a part of of that discourse is absolutely essential. And you know, developing networks that's that type of infrastructure uh, thinking and building is just is absolutely my jam. And you know, talking about network theory and things is something that not a lot of people do, but it's really important. And I think that's, you know, what you're talking about is a model that could be 
shared so widely and benefits so many folks, particularly in our sector that doesn't really have that that common language or that standard infrastructure like so many other sectors out there. Right. And if you can start um, widely spreading the word about what's possible, then hopefully that starts to shift things towards where communities and councils and governments understand that's a tool in their belt and can deploy it as and when and support the sector um, a bit more in depth. So fingers crossed all round, but I know that's something that you'll understand deeply what's been happening in your world. Definitely. Yeah, there's so much along the same lines, actually. We really looked at creative generation. We looked at the year 2020 with the great pause in programming that occurred as a year to to conduct a lot of research, to build some of that infrastructure like we just talked about. And, you know, we're seeing the fruits of that labor now. We're publishing a lot. We're launching a lot of things. We are scaling work that was piloted at the end of last year. A little more broadly um, and moving that to fruition um, and continuing just to adapt and pivot because 2021 like 2020 is just full of surprises certainly um, in in our work and so it's been really fulfilling but it it definitely um, has been keeping us really busy and you know actually personally too um, I also teach outside of my day-to-day work um, and the semester actually started uh, just this past week um, on a little bit of a weird schedule um, with uh, classes not being held in person. Um, and that's so rejuvenating for me. I, I absolutely love teaching. I don't know that I want to be in higher education full-time at this point in my career, but I definitely um, enjoy the process. I sort of apply my creativity in that way of, of scaffolding that knowledge together to grow the next you know, generation of folks mm-hmm. in our field. Um, and every year I'm just so, so inspired by the passion, um, particularly the passion for change and for making our sector better um, that comes from the dialogues I have in class. Okay. So just the other night we had a really powerful conversation and it, it kind of gave me that, that pep in my step uh, to, to carry on for this week because otherwise this week has been really, really crazy busy. <laughs> um, and so that was good. And um, you know, and then there's life, you know, we moved house actually in January and it's just been so great to settle in. It's a proper springtime now here uh, in, in Maryland and there's um, wonderful outdoor spaces around us and we have a backyard uh, and the dog <laughs> loves it. And it's just been really nice to, to feel settled and um, an, another type of rejuvenation really. Um, but, you know, it's crazy just in the world happening around all of my work in the U.S., ranging from the the pandemic and and the rollout of the vaccine that's been happening and really giving hope. We passed some legislation here in the U.S. that gave a tremendous amount of arts-focused stimulus money for our National Endowment for the Arts and a a new grant called Shuttered Venue Operators Grants, or SVOGs, that are really allowing Broadway to think about opening and art spaces welcoming young people again and Mm -hmm. schools to really return to some semblance of normalcy. And that's instilled a bit of of hope, I think, um, that really we see kind of transcend everything. Like it's also Arts Education Month in a lot of states here where they're celebrating visual art and dance and theater in schools. And it's so cool to see that, that same hope 
replicate and and sort of be amplified through our very kind of niche sector in, mm -hmm. in at the intersection of arts and, and culture and, and education and social change. Um, so it's just been really kind of nice. I feel like it's a true springtime uh, where we're where I'm at today, at least. Nice. Um, that in that same vein, though, I'm wondering, you know, as you've developed these networks and you're you're talking with folks, have you seen folks? really continuing to adapt in this new year of 2021? Like what's happening with teaching artists around the world that we should all know about? Yeah, it's an, it's an interesting one because I feel like that sort of come in stages and obviously it's totally different. Each country has a different reality with the pandemic and a different response. And so, you know, colleagues in, in New Zealand or Australia have been, you know, out and about interrupted from time to time with lockdowns, but compared to us in Scotland have been um, able to enjoy a lot more um, freedom, less restrictions. Whereas here in Scotland, we've been pretty much locked down for a year now. There have been parts where it started to open and now it's closing again. So obviously different parts of the world are responding slightly differently. But I have noticed some things start to kind of shift. I think ge very generally speaking, obviously, in the beginning, there was like a, a panic that everyone had. Things shut down and everyone was kind of like stunned and didn't really know what to expect, what was going to happen. Then there was a phase of everyone, you know, zooming and figuring out how to work this way and how to work digitally conferences including ours you know moving online and being like is this right do we do it like this I don't know and then now what I'm seeing is like everyone I can never say everyone a lot of people have now kind of found their feet doing work online or they've at least um found ways to exist this way and now have had that pause that you just talked about to be like what do we want to happen if things open up after we get vaccinated what do we want it to be not necessarily on a huge strategic level, but I am seeing an appetite for more collective action. So particularly coming out of the States, actually, a lot of awareness and demand around pay scales for teaching artists and valuing that properly and equitably. And um, how are people used? Why are they used that way? And is that okay? And I'm seeing that kind of be universal. The other thing I'm noticing is that because a lot of the recovery funding in different countries has had to be turned inwards towards their own performance spaces or freelancers, um, there's a real recognition that, that they can't be funding international work right now or touring companies or big, huge scale things like that. And that money's been refunneled into the artists or the spaces not enough and not strategically enough and obviously there are huge problems there so very generally speaking though people seem to have an appetite now for working very locally very um, in their own community and then communicating that globally whereas I think before it was kind of people always wanted to be in a different country doing work over there and now it seems that shift that seems to have started to shift a little and we're certainly thinking that now with our own conferences, like how do we really do grassroots, but keep the international? How do you really actually meaningfully shift a local perspective or a local issue while informing best practices internationally? And that kind of ethos has been an interesting shift. So I'm still at the beginning of understanding that, but it's, it's an interesting one. 
Yeah, I find your observations really interesting. And it, it actually harkens me back to some work that I did last year. So when the pandemic really took effect in the U.S. towards the end of March and the month of April, I started working with uh, Denny Palmer-Wolf of, of Wolf Brown, uh, a really well-known um, researcher here in the States and, and around the world in the arts and culture space. And we wanted to really respond to how how arts and cultural education programs, particularly those not in schools, um, in, in community settings, were responding to the COVID-19 pandemic. And we took to observing a, a small cohort of programs um, in a couple of networks in Massachusetts and San Diego and, and a couple of other places around the country for what we thought was going to be the months of April and May. But really what we ended up doing was following their trajectory from April through about September through the multiple pandemics, right? That mm -hmm. occurred in the US during that time, not only the COVID-19 pandemic, but the economic recession, the continuing climate crisis, and also the civil uprisings resulting from violence against our Black communities at the hands of police. And it was really fascinating to see them respond. And through that process, we asked some folks to, to visualize their response and came up with this model, much like you're talking about, that moved from this idea of a, a desire to turn back to normal, to then moving actually outside of normal to gain new insights and learn and then continue from there to implement those long-term strategic shifts that could actually benefit the future of the work and to, to gain that future's orientation and things. And um, we actually just published some of that. It was released um, a, a few weeks ago in a journal called Arts Education Policy Review, which for those who are listening, we'll drop that link in the chat. It is free to download through April, April 19th, I think. Um, and there's, you know, a really, I think big opportunity for us to harness the power of this pause or the pause mm -hmm. that maybe occurred in the past or maybe is occurring now and work to vision vision for the future um, simply because it's a once in a generation circumstance that we're living through right now and we have the time and the space and the scenario really to interrogate those ideas, like how are how are teaching artists supported and, and what is the work that they're doing? And is that really what we want or is it just what we've always done? Right, well, that's a really interesting one too, because now it's like, so you and I both attend international conferences pretty frequently and we have met there and things. And so it's like, you and I know better than, than most the kinds of voices that are represented there. Even really diverse gatherings are, still not nearly representative of the countries that are there and so it's like having to stay local you're like which voices are here that we just haven't been listening to what what work is going on that is not at those international conferences but has a million other ways of knowing or embodied practice or things that we just weren't valuing properly and so then you go huh maybe the you know mega institutions with the money to send folk to the conferences aren't the only ones that should be having a microphone and showcasing to the world best practice. And then are we even really seeing best practice? Or are we just seeing wealthy practice? And then it gets into those kind of questions. And that's, I mean, you know, <laughs> Creative Generation does this too, but it's, it is a sort of line of thinking that makes you go, yeah, what we were doing before and the, the system that you and I are arriving in is really, it needs unpicked a little that needs thought about and 
And this staying local and thinking globally is kind of an interesting shift towards starting that thought. Yeah, absolutely. We talk about that. And I appreciate you saying that about creative generation that we always talk about identifying and amplifying um, and documenting um, really transformative local practice mm -hmm. that deals with complex global challenges, right? That we're, how are we reckoning with these global crises on a hyper-local level? Because that's really where it works. No matter what anyone says to you, large convenings that produce a piece of paper truly only have so much impact, but hands-on mm -hmm. effort in a local community have huge impact. And I think that's something for us to reconcile. But the point about who's being heard is something that really speaks to the underpinning rationale for this podcast. And mm -hmm. so I, I want to a little bit go there because you had a really wonderful conversation with a teaching artist or a socially engaged participatory artist, as she calls herself. So tell us a little bit about Fia Neo. Yeah, Fia is amazing. She, well, you'll hear in a moment um, the hows and whys of how she came to be where she is now with her art and her practice. But as a sort of very, very broad strokes overview, she is this huge bundle of energy <laughs> and she is just, um, she always has about three or four different ideas, all of which take like an hour to digest fully because she is just so, she's very well-traveled. She's very well, like she's trained in all these different forms. She went from um, a really prestigious fashion design school in the UK to being a sustainable farmer for a little while to now she's doing a business course to help understand economics better so that she can think more about um, sustainability of teaching artistry and socially engaged practice. She hosts a podcast. Um, I did an episode with her a month ago or something. And it's she you I just love speaking to her because you always come away with new thoughts and new ways of going, huh, that just blew my mind a little bit. And um, so I'm really excited to bring her to this podcast because I think she's exactly the kind of young change maker that we want to be amplifying the voice of. Definitely. And before we jump in, just a quick note to our listeners, there is one moment of adult language in this interview. And of course, we at Creative Generation never wish to censor anyone, especially our artists and creatives, educators, or young people. But we did just want to let listeners know ahead of time. All right, let's get to the interview just after a quick ad. Creative Generation is proud to support the ABLE Assembly, Arts Better the Lives of Everyone Conference, hosted by the Berkeley Institute for Arts Education and Special Needs. Taking place online on April 10th and 11th, 2021, the theme of the 2021 ABLE Assembly is intersectionality, disability, and arts education. To learn more and register, please visit www.berkeley.edu slash ABLE. That's B-E-R-K-L-E-E dot E-D-U slash A-B-L-E. See you there. Hi, Fee. Welcome. And thank you so much for being here to talk to me for the Why Change podcast. To give a little background to anyone listening, you and I were first introduced by a European contact we both know who works in the participatory arts or teaching artistry because we were both young people working in the field of arts for social transformation. And then you came to our ATTAC 5 conference last year where we found time to chat properly and we just connected. 
And since then, we've been figuring out ways to work together on showcasing the value and the impact of socially engaged art. And I know that's something you've been working on for a while, long before that too. So can you just start off by telling listeners a bit about that work and what it is that you do? So um, I do quite a lot of different things. My practice is interdisciplinary. So I've got a background in performance and wearable art. So I started out really wanting to make wearable art. And I thought, you know, if I make art pieces that's wearable, that people can wear out to public spaces, and these art talks about social and political issues, then I can really change the world. But then, you know, after about a year in fashion, I realized that wasn't the case. So I ended up in socially engaged practice because my works have always been social and political. And at some point, realizing that theater spaces or even exhibition spaces weren't providing me with the right kind of spaces to engage in such conversations. My practice sort of like evolved into socially engaged practice where I was doing participatory art interventions with wearable art pieces that look kind of crazy, but it was that attraction point for people to come into my conversations and talk about things that matter, you know, about the housing crisis or several different like um, topics. And then my work sort of evolved um, not not sort of led through by the practice, but rather whatever that the theme or the art or the community's needs that whichever practice fits would come along to be that that tool for that sort of conversation or that sort of space for um, the message to be conveyed. Um, and then I started INSEP when I was uh, still in London. So that was back in 2017. INSEP is International Network for Socially Engaged Practitioners. So a bit of background, I was doing participatory interventions and then I realized um, through an intervention that I was doing that I couldn't care for people's mental health. And sometimes my works open up that space of vulnerability and I didn't know how to navigate that. And around me, there weren't people who were um, practitioners in this field and they didn't understand you know, the, the process that I was going through. And that was when I met Lars, was doing a European Academy of Participation. That was the contact that we had in common. And, you know, the like two years that I was involved with EAP, we were talking about all of these different things that I was, I was so excited someone was talking about. And it really brought together such an amazing pool of people who are in socially engaged practice to share about the vulnerabilities of um, ethics, working with people and also financial sustainability. And then back then, I also realized pretty early on, it's really difficult to continue socially engaged works um, because we are very much dependent on grants to do it and when we're dependent on grants we're always you know just competing with other social organizations and as, as artists we're not necessarily trained to be you know grant writers and suddenly all of that just falls on you, you as an individual artist to do everything you know be be the fundraiser be the artist be the um, logistics administration person the financial person and it was just a lot so so that sort of like inset a large part of the work, um, apart from bringing people together and sharing those resources and conversations, was also to research um, financial independence and sustainability for socially engaged projects. Amazing. So I feel like your work has about 12 different strands at any one time, which is why I'm so <laughs> intrigued by it always. Um, and I, obviously you yourself are a socially engaged artist and you talked about starting with wearable art, understanding funding and doing applications and working in London and, and European levels. So I suppose I would be really curious to hear a sort of chronological step by step of like, where did you go? How did you end up back in Singapore now from all these amazing places that you started? 
Yeah, so um, so I, I was studying in London, so I was there for four years and I was already doing work in sort of theatre and sort of intervention spaces, which, you know, it, because I was doing public interventions, a lot of times I get chased by security and that landed me with a lot of different festivals that I was doing my work in. And then um, through European Academy of Participation, I was exposed to European projects, which um, allowed me to open up that space um, to understand how, I guess, that part of the social sector in Europe works. And then when I started in SEP, um, I was just connecting with a lot of people around and also the network that was in EAP. And Elias was suggesting to me that, you know, you really need to understand how um, the, the sort of social sector in Europe and how European projects function if you want to set up your own entity or organization. Originally, I thought, you know, I could set up in SEP as an organization and do European projects, but you know, I, I really needed to understand how that function. So through connections. Um, one person connected me to another and then I ended up in France. <laughs> I just went with a suitcase without much of a plan <laughs> and there was this director of an NGO that was doing um, sort of like international Europe-Asia exchange and somehow there was a fit between what I was trying to do with the, with the network and, and what they were doing there. So I thought, you know, maybe this is a good way to figure out how artists may, can maybe collaborate or work with um, NGOs because NGOs are skilled in writing those grant applications and perhaps there is some way to, you know, apply for funding together and allow for artists to find different financial avenues to support and continue their work. Um, so with like really a stroke of luck, um, I, I managed to uh, get an opportunity to work in the organization for a year and I got a visa to do so. Um, and then throughout the year, I really learned a lot. So it was very interesting because I was so much in the art space and I was making, I don't know, costumes for like Disney projects or all sorts of other stuff. And my university gave me so many different opportunities. And then suddenly I was in France. Everyone only spoke <laughs> French mostly. And then, you know, I was just completely not in my art space. I was just in the social sector. Nobody really knew me as an artist, not necessarily because, you know, I was a different personality, different identity. And I I really, I, I traveled a lot in that year and I really learned how how Europe works in the social sector, but also how, I guess, the different cultural exchanges, the different contexts, the different history of different European countries, which are so different and diverse. I thought I knew everything when I was in London, but no, it was completely uh -huh. different. And, and then that also allowed me to really understand on a deeper level how European funding works and what are different sort of opportunities available there. And the thing is, I, if I were European, I could have really pretty easily set up INSET as, you know, INSET as a, as a proper entity or a sort of organization and continue work from there. But because I'm not, I, I couldn't assess a lot of these opportunities. So that put me in a situation where, yeah, I was building up this network and I was getting invo involved with a lot of different conversations, but I, I couldn't necessarily bring it further as an individual. And then um, at the end of my year in France, I, I was feeling quite exhausted and I really wanted to re-enter the art space, pardon my neighbor's dog. Um, and I, I was thinking like, so this sort of NGO structures, it actually also works on the same um, financial model of applying for grants. And I, I just found it really precarious because if there were any sort of cut in, in any sort of funding, you know, a lot of NGOs wouldn't survive in Europe because it's almost 100% of their income comes from there. And, and then with Brexit and all these um, uncertainties in the region, everything was a big question mark as well. 
so I was really like thinking, okay, if I want to be, if I want this practice to be financially independent, then I have to find a way that is going to have some sort of business model. So that was when I started to look into social enterprises and social innovation models. And back then I was already sort of researching into post-capitalism, gift economy and universal basic income, you know, all of these really interesting and cool concepts. And then, you know, with the sort of deeper understanding of climate crisis while working with activist groups and sort of um, nonprofit sector in, in France that was really going into this topic, I realized that if we are, you know, we have finite resources on earth, um, yet we are asking for an infinite economic growth. So if we want to continue growing, what is it that can provide jobs for people that isn't going to exploit natural resources? And here we go, we have got socially engaged practitioners who are, you know, skilled in community care, which is really what people need in terms of relationships, in terms of well-being, in terms of what we need in term, in, in the sort of social glue in society. Why is it that we're not properly compensated for and paid for our services? And and, you know, this is always the sort of conversation where if you are working on a grassroots level, if you are building communities, then that's something that you should just do voluntarily. But then how are people supposed to survive? How are they supposed to pay their rent? How are they supposed to even, you know, think about starting a family? You, you can't afford it while volunteering your way, you know, through that. And it doesn't make sense that something that brings about so much social impact isn't properly compensated for when the value is so much more than, you know, manipulating numbers in the financial industry. So that was when I started to look into social enterprises and I got in touch with um, a couple of different social change agencies. And back then I had already left France. So I was really um, intrigued by sort of the North American ways of doing things. I saw that there were a lot of really interesting social change agencies who somehow managed to make it work because I think America works on a very different um, structure as compared to Europe. They, they don't have that much public funding. So they are dependent on sort of either private funding or they find some, some ways of being sustainable themselves so I went and then COVID hit (laughs) so it completely like sort of disrupted my plans Um, but in a way it also allowed me to really be rooted there for six months for you know that was as long as my tourist visa allowed me to stay to understand how things worked so I ended up on different organic farms and I was learning about permaculture and I was learning about regenerative restorative agriculture I was learning about sort of climate and the impact of agriculture on it and then at the same time because you know the whole world sort of like went into lockdown I was everyone was also online and I could connect with so many more organizations that otherwise I wouldn't have been able to because I would have had to do it you know physically and then I started my podcast um, called Onions Talk when I was I was there because you know I was having all these conversations and I'm like okay these conversations have to go somewhere and everyone is in a phase where you know suddenly it frees up more time to actually listen to things so I thought okay now is a good time for me to do that and then along with that it it allowed me my podcast allowed me that sort of platform to reach more people whom otherwise I would have had I guess less of a reason to connect with them because then the conversation isn't just a conversation it's something that you know also helps um, publicize or share what the other person's work is about. So that was a really interesting thing for me. I think like I kind of, okay, oh, and then now to link it back to Singapore. So that's been quite a long journey. Uh, and then my visa ran out and I had to return. And then coming back to Singapore, I mean, the reality here is really different, the local context. And um, it, it also like almost mandated me to, 
think differently and do things differently also just because culturally it's so different from what I'm used to so maybe like you know now it's the like a good time to share about the, the business course that um I was so I'm kind of in um so I I got to a point of realization where social innovation and social enterprise it's it's great but it's still a sort of a business model but with a social impact agenda and and that you know my research in financial sustainability and independence um, in the socially engaged project space also made me realize that we we will not be able to get to spaces where there is funding or we will not be able to get to that that place of financial sustainability until we offer services to where the money is at and that really pushed me to look at businesses because businesses are the places where the money is at that they, that can afford services that can pay for things um and businesses i mean not just um not just like uh, businesses that the structures that's doing stuff but also the people who are working in businesses because that was, that is also another avenue that can be tapped at financially um and i think one of the issues with sort of like funding-based socially engaged projects is that the the sort of focus, it's always on disadvantaged groups. And I mean, I can understand the social agenda behind that, but that also means that we are further segregating these communities. And we're saying that, you know, if you are disabled, then you're only going to be with disabled because, you know, the fund only covers this. Or if you are like a senior, then that's just, you know, senior funded sort of activities. And what we really need in society is really more interaction, social cohesion, and that sort of glue that can allow people to have that space to understand different perspectives and to and to learn differences and just to understand you know what are people's stories what how have they lived how is it different from my economic or social structure or my environment and that is when we can actually solve issues in society and i felt like there wasn't that and a lot of fundings it's very it's very restrictive in that sense so i forgot sorry i forgot where i was at (laughs) That's okay. This might be a good time because I feel like I'm still absorbing all of what you just said. I I knew a lot of it, but I think you're the only person I know who has like a fashion degree and has worked on a farm and has come up with socially engaged practice and formed organizations and podcasts. And like, I just, I, I am so amazed by your actual step-by-step journey. And before we go on, I just have to ask, who did you make costumes for with Disney? Uh, so actually, uh, it wasn't a f- who. Um, it was so Beauty and the Beast, you know, the film with oh, Emma Watson. Yeah. So mm-hmm. they were doing a project where for, as part of the publicity, they were going to have an alternative red carpet event. And then they commissioned um, a group of us to make costumes for that. So that was, I mean, it's on YouTube. Um, if if you search like Central St. Martin's uh, Disney Beauty and the Bees, it comes up and mine's like this red bow jar costume thing with lights that come through. Yeah, it was a, it was a fun project, but it was really stressful as well. <laughs> I know that is like one tenth, one one hundredth of the things you just talked about, but you and I have never discussed this before, but I did my dissertation on gender issues in Disney. And so anytime I hear an involvement, I'm like, tell me more, what was that? (laughs) Um, So you've gone from doing all of that art and all of that creating to your socially engaged practice. And now you're doing a business course to help become more fluent in 
how to talk to businesses and bring them into the socially engaged space. Um, so I'm curious to hear if you had to pick just one project um, that you are particularly proud of or one piece of work that you've done where you feel like that was really just doing exactly the thing that I do well and that I'm proud of, what project would you describe um, that you've worked on and why that project? Actually, when I was in France, I worked with um, a man who was homeless. Uh, so back then, there was um, a project, a European project that we were doing to develop local tours um, to offer sort of like alternative perspectives and and highlight, I guess, stories that you know people otherwise wouldn't know of. Um, and it was about multicultural um, exchange and stuff. So I I was like, okay, this is a great. Um, project and there are I mean I don't know if you know Marseille it's a second largest city in France but it's also got really high unemployment rates and I was like okay what if what if we reach people who actually need that sort of income and develop the tour with them so I went to like employment centers I went on the streets I just talked to people who were on the streets and um, and everyone just kind of gave me the cold shoulder also because you know I'm not French and I don't speak fluent French so I think people looked at me funny and then there was this um, man he's a really lovely man he was like mostly uh, often seated outside of our office and he, he was he was homeless and then I just went up to him and I talked to him and he was super enthusiastic so we ended up you you know deciding okay let's let's do this you know let's hear your story and then let's develop a tour then you can you can give it to tourists and then or, or local people and then that can give you some income so we developed it and then while i was hearing his story it's amazing because he's he was a veteran uh, he he served in the French military as a légionnaire, so he was like you know the most, the toughest of the military, and right. he he joined the military because he believed that that was the way that he could he could be of service to his country and he could be of service to society. So he was posted in um, I think Cambodia, Vietnam for a period of time, and that was sort of after the Vietnam War. So that area was um, kind of still still a lot of unrest and. Um, the French military sort of intervened and he had all these incredible stories to share and then he was telling me that you know he, he had an he had a health problem so he couldn't finish his military service and then he came back to France um, he switched a career he was a firefighter and then he couldn't continue that either because he had a heart attack so he had issues with his health and because he didn't finish his military service he had to wait till he was 62 to be able to receive his pension. And back then when I met him, he was 60. So he was out on the streets because, you know, he couldn't work. And he he was sending in applications for emergency funding and the office just kept saying that they didn't receive it. So eventually he was, he ended up homeless and it wasn't really by choice. And because there is so much stigma against homeless people, it's just a really sad situation. And then I... When, as he was sharing, I asked if I could film it and share it as sort of, you know, teaser for publicity for the tour. So that was what I did. So I made these like little videos, almost like a series of his story. And, and then from, from that, I did a lot of publicity on YouTube and Facebook and with like different networks. And this is the amazing thing. While we developed the tour and I was using Facebook as a channel to communicate this tour, before the tour even started, people already knew him through the videos that I was making of him. And then, you know, sometimes I would 
come by, you know, drop by um, when I was going up the office, he would, we would check a little bit and then he would tell me that, oh, you know, Fia, someone bought me ice cream today. You know, they saw my, they saw my little video on, on, on Facebook and they bought me ice cream. You know, they were taking photos of me and they chatted with me for like three hours and it was so nice. And, you know, I hear little stories like this along the way and nobody knew who he was in the office, even though he was there every day. And then because I was posting up posters about the tour, people started to talk to him from the office and then when we started to do the tour, the first time that we did it, um, we had a couple of people with us and then, you know, people gave some money and he was in tears. Like he, he, he got teary eyed and he just was like, oh, you know, you didn't have, you don't have to give me money. And then we're like, no, you did a good job. You know, you deserve it. And then afterwards he told me, you know, after a lot of reflections and, and silence, like he said, Fia, it's nicer to, to talk to people in the eye and not just be sat down looking at people pass by because, you know, it really hit me that he has become invisible in society to a certain degree. And what I was doing with that project, it wasn't just about the project. It was about how I could connect him with a larger community and that would stay regardless of whether I'm present or not. And it's those bonds and relationships and connections with society and, and being seen as a person that, that gives him the dignity for me, that was like, you know, the projects where I really felt like I was creating an impact somewhere. And I feel like socially engaged practice, it's not just about the art, it's about how we can connect people to build a larger community or support network such that, you know, we are supported in societies as, as individuals. That's amazing. I think that's such a a strong example of the kind of work that you do as well because one thing I've really admired while we've chatted and I've heard about your project is how responsive you are it's not like you come up with an application and then you go and find people who might help you do the thing it's like you hear about an issue and instantly you're like there's something here how can we change this and how can we do something about it um, and that's really amazing to me. I wish everyone approached work like that. Um, but I can see how that would lead you into thinking about sustainability and, and where to get funding and to sustain ourselves as artists. Um, so looking ahead to the future then, what do you think is the most crucial thing for young change makers to be focusing on? So if you were to make a guess at where we should all focus energy around what's going to come next and how to be ready for it, um, what do you think that would look like? What would be your best mm. guess? But, you know, I feel like this is not an issue just to, solely for young change makers because young change makers are also bounded by what is it that they can practically and feasibly do. If people mm -hmm. cannot get an income to be able to survive, you know, minimally just to be able to survive, to pay your rent, to pay your bills, how do we expect young people to be change makers of the future? We are not creating that ecosystem or the environment to support that. And this is something I feel very strongly about because, I mean, with my own experiences as well, it's really difficult. You know, when you graduate, you have like maybe a, a short time period of a couple of years to figure out what you want to do and then at some point you have to succumb to a system of like nine to five nine to six where you are doing a job that you know you don't believe in that isn't meaningful that is just profiting off some sort of exploitation elsewhere a lot of people don't want to do that especially young people who are conscious and aware of these issues but the fact is that where are the other jobs then that's available and before we even talk about where the other jobs are available are we ready as a society to pay for that or to fund that because if we are not, then we are never going to transition out of this system that is going to continue destroying the planet. And I feel like, 
you know, this is something that we have to collectively work together as a whole ecosystem. It's not just about one sector, because, you know, if we look at things from each sector's perspective, then the social sector is just going to look within the social sector. We are always just going to have conversations with just funders. That's it. But then if we look at businesses and, and the capacity in there to tap on businesses, strength and power and or, or financial capabilities to try and do more or to try and change mindsets there, then that's where things can really change. And I mean, I've been involved in a lot of conversations, you know, when I was back in France, before I left, I really felt like, you know, pardon my language, but the world's fucked and that we just, we're just running out of time. <laughs> and I, I was prepared to just join an eco village and then, you know, forget about like visa and all that. I was prepared to just wing it and, and sacrifice not being able to return to Singapore or leave the country just so that, you know, I'm in an eco village mm-hmm. somewhere and I'm properly planting trees or something doing something good good for the planet and there were there are a lot of conversations around this so I've heard of people who have been trying to create change for decades and nothing went through they've been through all these different sources like governments or businesses and and the system doesn't change because I guess people don't change and you know in the end they're telling me that the only way that you can you can be out of this is is that you create your alternative but the fact is that that alternative is not accessible for everyone if we look at people who are in the cities people have family it's not that people don't want to do something to change it's that when you have your responsibilities when your response your urgent responsibility is your immediate family members that you have to be responsible for to take care of then you know as much as you want to be in an in a eco village not everyone can afford to do so and and i i guess i also got to the point of that sort of conversation and 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 thought process where I'm not ready to give up the rest of the world. You know what I mean? Like there's going to be yeah. so much suffering and I'm I'm not doing the, what I'm doing because I want to change the world because I want to be that, that person. You know, I'm doing it because mm-hmm. I'm seeing a lot of suffering and I'm seeing a lot of people in pain and I'm seeing how we have created societies in which our tolerance level, it's it's so filled already with so much whatever that's, that this society has created, that we can be indifferent, that we can shut our eyes to people who are in, in less privileged positions and situations. And I just don't want to live in a world that continues to perpetuate that. And what is it that we can do to change things? So in the end, it's also what kind of support we can give and engaging with different generations, not just young people, because yeah, they're their fire, their houses are in fire because like that's their future, their immediate future that they will experience. And it doesn't mean that if you're a 70 year old, you're comfortable or like you're 50s or 60s and you're comfortable, you don't want to jeopardize your position in, in your business or in your work that, that you don't want to do something more. It's not about that. You know, it's about how, what is the legacy that you are going to leave behind? What is it that you are going to change in this world such that it's a better world for younger people to inherit? You know, what it's our collective individual responsibility and social responsibility to do so. And it's not about how uncomfortable it is. It's that it is our responsibility to take ownership of. So then let me ask, let me follow that up with a question then, because if I think we're in agreement, you and I, that there needs to be an eco change shift and there needs to be a different approach um, if the world is going to be sustainable and if jobs and arts and, you know, human mental health is going to be sustainable. Um, what then would you say is the first step? So I, I, I take the point it's not a generational 
um, silo that needs to make it happen. But if we were to harness the collective energy of the world, what would be the first step you would want us to take strategically to make that happen? Hmm. I feel like, I guess in part, this is something that I'm, I'm trying to do through INSEP, International Network for Socially Engaged Practitioners, which is to bring together cross-sector conversations. Mm -hmm. And part of that, I'm trying to bring in socially engaged artists who understand the importance of this process um, to facilitate an experience such that people will fundamentally connect with themselves and with other people. I think it has to be, it has to come from from connection with our emotions and feelings because if we're out of touch with that if we empty ourselves of that then that that energy that transformational energy it's not going to click because a lot of change it comes from feelings it comes from emotions when we talk about changing the system fundamentally we're talking about changing people but we cannot change another person but we can inspire that change and the person has to take it upon himself or herself to do so and that spark is going to come from his or her experiences or her, his or her feelings. So I feel like there is that role in there that socially engaged practitioners can play that taps on these emotions and connection, like genuine authentic connection to, to you know, bring forward, pay forward um, a, a process of change and collaboration that, that can be the thing that will lead us towards a more progressive future. Right. Yeah, I think there's a huge amount to be said for inspiring other people to make the change in the way that they see it to be needed. Um, yeah, I always come away from listening to you talk like ready to just like take up arms and start a revolution. So I'm, I'm always, yeah, I love to hear your thoughts. I think it's time to move on to the final section where I ask you some quick fire questions to help people get to know you and your your thought process and and the ideas underpinning your work and um, so I'm going to ask you quick fire questions and then you just respond in either one word or one sentence like short quick fire answers okay are you ready yeah okay so who inspires you Andrea Zimmerman okay what keeps you motivated um I don't want to live in a world that doesn't care about other people. And where are you most grounded? Um, listening to people. How do you stay focused? Balance. And finally, why change? Because we can afford to live in a better world. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Fia. It seems so lovely talking to you. Thank you. Join Teaching Artists Guild, TAG, for their BIPOC youth-led professional development workshops. Teen artists will lead interactive workshops on the third Wednesday of each month through June. Workshops are accessible with sign language interpretation offered by Pro Bono ASL. They're also open to all, and there's a sliding scale fee for those available to support this program. What a great interview, Madeline. Wow, I mean, VA talks so fast and has so many big <laughs> ideas. I love it. it it really resonates with me. And I think, you know, her perspective right there at the end about working with other people to help them bring to reality the change that they wish to see. I mean, that that's why we do our work. Totally. Totally. I, she's one of these people, when I first met her, I was like, wow, I can't wait to see what you do next. Because, you know, she's, 
currently, you know, our age, she's young. And so you're like in 20 or 30 years, what will you have made happen? This is just, I can't wait to watch because already she's accumulated so much um, niche streams of knowledge and understanding. And I'm like, if, I can't wait to see how it all comes together and the change that, that results. Yeah. And one of those niche streams of knowledge, to use that term, that I really appreciated was this, this perspective about both the, the role of artists as social change makers and the needs for their future development and their skills that bring those ideas to reality. Like you said, the, the business acumen or uh, the other types of understandings of economic principles that are so often not included in those structures that we have now, which do cultivate the creativity of, of artists and, and the next generation. Right. And it's, she, she really embodies that. And I think the other thing that's interesting is that when, when she spoke to me for, for her podcast, which is called Onions Talk, and everyone should go and listen to, um, but it's, she didn't, have an understanding of what a teaching artist was when we first met and she was like I thought it was to do with schools and I thought it was to do with working with you know young people in an institution and then I was like no you know it's what we call participatory artists in Scotland states call it teaching artistry and Europe sort of mainland Europe France where she spent a lot of time it's socially engaged art or it's community art and so she's very intentional about socially engaged practice and that being her focus because um, also in Singapore there's a, a, a large volume of social enterprises and so things need to be seen in, to be in line with innovation to be seen as important and worth funding it, she tells me this is all secondhand knowledge and um, and so she has this really unique take on that and coming up as a young creative um, she had never identified with the term teaching artist she came to Attack 5 and clearly like found her people and, and we're in touch. But it's it's interesting that the pockets of people that exist and how they identify and what they call themselves. But really what everyone's discovering sort of independently is what we talk about all the time, which is the transformative power of arts. And it's, yeah, she's she's a really good example of how that can happen in different contexts that aren't participatory or teaching artists or those sort of conventional terms. Yeah, and th that language though is is really important. I find it, I find it really interesting, right? I, because I did actually come from sort of the business side of things, and and my story is one probably not unlike a lot of folks that end up doing the work that we do, which was that I grew up in a very arts rich environment. I had the very distinct privilege of having dance and music and theater and visual art in school and in my community, and reached some pretty early success, um, which taught me a couple of things, one of which was that I did not want to be a professional tap dancer my whole life. <laughs> um, and so I ended up actually studying arts management from the undergraduate level, which is pretty uncommon. Usually people move into that after studying their art form um, in a graduate degree or, or something like that. And, um, you know, it's fascinating because I came to understand those concepts of nonprofits and charities and social enterprises very early on. I mean, to the point that, you know, Creative Generation actually is a, a registered public benefit corporation or a, a B Corp, which is a American um, model that's been growing in the last um, several years or so that sort of 
mashes nonprofit with, um, you know, a, a social enterprise um, and, and things of that nature. So that's been an interesting model. But when we were actually forming, moving from a research initiative to an actual organization to be able to do the type of work that we did, I had a, a, a colleague of mine, um, Delug Smith, big shout out to Delug. He'll actually be on the <laughs> podcast in a couple of weeks. He talked to me and he said something to the effect of, well, your, your work is not defined by your organizational structure. Your organizational structure is a tool in your tool belt to help you achieve your work. And that, that flip of mentality, just it released a huge burden on my shoulders to say, okay, it's not actually about how we file our taxes or it's not actually about how we interface with government, but it's actually about this concept that the arts are transformative and we should use as, as catalysts for the field, we should really use all of the different tools in our tool belt, whether that is the knowledge that Thea gained from being a sustainable agriculturalist or in business school. All of those things lend uh, credibility and perspective and skill to actually applying our harnessed creativity for the community good, really. Totally. It's just which lens you describe it through. That's what I've come to see because I, like you, uh, constituted a tax. So I set us up as an organisation. We are a charity here in Scotland because that was the closest thing to what we are trying to do. We're not turning a profit. We're just helping folks and doing things we deem to be useful based on what we're told is useful. Um, But it was really interesting because when I was first setting it up, you go through the process of getting constituted and doing all the admin and it, I remember it's like you have to have charitable purposes and you can choose from a list of like however many. And one is to advance the arts and one is to advance education. And I was like, cool, these are ours. Boom, 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 do the application, send it back. And the woman came back and she said, how do teaching artists advance the arts and how do they advance education? And I was like, what? Wow. <laughs> yeah, how? It's not, a, I don't even know where to begin. Like saying how is water wet? Like it just <laughs> okay, I can explain it, but um interesting. So then you start to go, well, clearly there was a need for us to do this because there's a lot of work needing to be done about um increasing understanding and awareness of the practice. But it was like the the different steps you have to go through and the different vocabulary you need to use to just get the the space to do the work that you want to do that then it all becomes clear but the sort of phases between starting and getting there are are a bit of a roller coaster so um yeah constant getting set up it's something we talk about all the time I know she is now looking at the possibility of being a set social enterprise because um like I said in Singapore she tells me you're incentivized to always be innovating and to be doing that kind of thing rather than charity which in the UK is incentivized, but I hear is not so much over there. So it, it was just a, it was just an interesting discussion around if we want to do the same thing, we have to call it five different names to to qualify it for whatever it is you're trying to get in that context. Yeah, and that's an ongoing thing. I think our sector will certainly always be grappling with as as times change and language changes. But what I appreciate most about what you shared and the journey that we did with Creative Generation and what Fie was talking about with with her work is this concept that how you talk about your work 
really matters. And, and this ties back to some of our underpinning research, which cites, you know, educational psychology that is really understood to say that educators, how educators describe the work that they do subconsciously impacts the way they actually do their work. Hmm. So if we are saying that the purpose of socially engaged arts is to bring our communities together and help deal with large global challenges on a hyper-local scale like we were talking about earlier, then that actually will impact how we do the work in our, in our own heads. But if we just appeal to the language of those gatekeepers of funding and policy and we justify everything by you know, lowering school dropout rates and increasing college attendance, then subconsciously we're going to work towards those ends. And so I think having a real um, stake in the ground and a real commitment to the language that we use to describe why we do the work that we do as as teaching artists or cultural practitioners or um, however you identify, I think is a, a real strong call to action for our field. And it really comes with this notion that you know, as we advocate for our work, knowing what it is that we do and how we do it and why we do it is really that important first step. Yeah, we always have this with the term teaching artist because we we are always very like, I think it's on our homepage of our website where it's like, this is the term we chose because we had to pick a term. But um, what we mean by the practice are these goals or is this, end result the aim you have while you do your work is what makes you probably part of this field rather than this art form or this methodology or this type of you know underpinning research and so it's much much broader than that and I think with that you can be much more inclusive and much less siloed with this conference is only for people who subscribe to this way of working and it just you know you want to go far go together and all that jazz so I think it it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I'm right there with you. So, uh, Madeline, as we look towards the future, what do you have coming up? What should what should our listeners be paying attention to in the next couple of weeks or months? A lot, <laughs> a lot. Like I think a lot of the wider arts community last year was like stop, take stock, and plan, and this year is like launch everything and go for it. So. If you aren't on ITAC's mailing list, there's a shameless plug, but I really think I would strongly recommend that folks subscribe to that if they're interested in this kind of work. In this last month alone, I think we have, by the time this comes out, we'll have launched seven or eight new projects, most of which have paid positions attached, open calls, advisory panels. There are voluntary roles and stipended roles if you don't have a whole bunch of time to commit, but you want to be engaged. And there are paid positions if it's something that you want to pursue on a on a bigger time scale. So there are loads of ways. And FIA is one of thousands we have and that we connect with in our mailing list and our work. So I mean, you've heard the energy and the innovation and the ideas that come from her. And so just imagine when there's 2,000 of us in a room. Like it's amazing and it's so much stronger when it's big and diverse and representative so I would just say sign up keep an eye out because there's a lot coming in the pipeline and a lot that we can be doing to to move forward together 
Definitely. And in that same vein of moving forward together and shameless plugs, I'll just <laughs> mention that, Madeline, you and I have both been involved with the Young and Emerging Leaders Forum, or the YELF, which is a, an initiative that was born out of um, a convening that was held by the World Alliance for Arts Education. And since moving online, this group of, of younger practitioners in the field of arts and cultural education has decided to get together once a month. Um, and we'll go ahead and drop that link in the show notes as well. But if, if you identify as a young and emerging leader in the field, uh, 35 or under within the first few years of your career, we invite you to join. These conversations that we have once a month are really great and super unplanned and very organic. And it's a wonderful way to connect with folks all yeah, around come the hang world. Out. Yeah, it's a good time. It's a good time. Well, that brings us to the end of our time here today on this episode of the Why Change podcast. Thanks so much for being here, Madeline. It was good to see you as always. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Why Change, the podcast for a creative generation. If you would like to support this podcast aimed at amplifying the voices of creative change makers around the world, please consider donating through the link located in the episode's show notes. These show notes contain all sources discussed in the episode. Be sure to follow, like, subscribe, and share the Why Change podcast to make sure you and your networks get episodes delivered directly to you and that you don't miss any stories of creative work happening around the world. If you haven't already, be sure to follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Also, we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at info at creative-generation.org. We would love to hear your ideas, the topics you want to learn about, and why change matters to you. Our show is produced and edited by Daniel Stanley. Our music is by Distant Cousins. A special thanks to our contributors, co-hosts, and the team at Creative Generation for their support. Mm-hmm.